Hello, Bibliophiles. Hello, Bibliophores. Hello, Bibliophobes who are listening to this as some sort of therapy. My name is Ed Fortune, and you're listening to FabRadioInternational.com, and this is The Bookworm. It's just me with producer Al. Hello. So it, it, it's you, you see, all the rest of the cast are hiding in the dark, doing their dark book librarian-style rituals. Alternatively, it's Christmas, and they all have family. That as well. However, you know, books are my family, as are you, gentle listener. You, you are my family. Uh, it might be that slightly creepy uncle who sits and stares at you, but still. Uh, coming up on the show, we have book news, we have an interview with Richard Morgan, and I want to talk about a very well-known, very best-selling, very popular fantasy trilogy that might not be immediately obvious to you that it's a fantasy trilogy. So we'll, uh, we'll deal with that in a moment. But coming up next, book news. Across the world, the real alternative, FabRadioInternational.com. So, given that it's the midwinter season, many, many people in the book world have, let's be honest, gone home. <laughs> They're all curled up at the moment with their books. So, at the moment, in 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 Bookworm Towers, we have a pile of, of exciting new books, and pretty much we've had the log fire on, and we've been curled up with the with, with a pile of books. Um, being very, very warm and reading through a whole pile of new releases, which is absolutely lovely, but hardly news. One thing that does happen, however, is that publishers kind of wake up, a certain sort of publishers wake up and go, hmm, actually, maybe maybe people are kind of in the dark. In the cold and the dark, and they're not going out. And they're not going out. Maybe maybe they should write that novel, and then maybe they should, they should write that novel, and they should give it to us. That's kind of the concept of NaNoWriMo, if we're entirely honest. But actual large commercial concerns are interested in your work, or they might be. So, two that have come up recently. Firstly, Warhammer, uh, the Black Library, which is part of the Games Workshop Empire. Um, The Black Library only produced books based on the world of Warhammer. They're always looking for new authors. They've launched a whole bunch of people in the past... Um, their ranks include Guardians of the Galaxy, Dan Abnett, um, Gemmell Award winning Graham McNeil, um, Hugo nominated David Annadale, Sarah Corkwell's written for the Black Library. Ah. An absolute big pile of people have been involved. Um, weirdly, uh, Jack Yeovil, aka Kim Newman, actually wrote for Games Workshop way back when. Anyway, if you're looking for a start, if you're looking for your, your break, if you're after that kind of that first short story or that first novel or that first novella that you can use to to turn on to other publishers and say, "See, I can hit deadli- deadlines, and I'm not a complete lunatic," then you might want to consider giving the world's Warhammer a chance. Um, they have a submissions window which is open now, now, and closes at midnight, January the twenty sixth, twenty fifteen. What they're after is they're after a five hundred word writing sample. Um, they're after a short paragraph summarising the, the short story, and they're after a specific short story on the Death Watch. If you don't know what the Death Watch is, 
then you might have to go and do some research. Obviously, if you do know what the Death Watch is, you're probably in a better situation to write stuff for Warhammer. A short version, the Death Watch are a bunch of space marines, that's genetically engineered space soldiers from Games Workshop's um, Warhammer 40,000 line of toys. And the Death Watch are the guys who wander around and kill the great big aliens. Um, space marines kill great big aliens all the time, but these are like the alien killing specialists. And one of the reasons why it's a, a nice... Um, a nice opportunity is it's the Death Watch is lots of different types of space marines. There's flavours of space marines. You get like chocolate, strawberry. Mm. Um, Five hundred words isn't very much though. No, but they get swamped. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I was uh, was talking to. But um, I mean, in terms of you as a potential author, sort of trying to sell yourself, that's that's very brief. It's do it's do or I mean, die, do, isn't it? Yeah. It's very do or die. I was talking to Lovie Golding uh, about eighteen months ago. He's one of these missions editor type chaps. Uh, he mostly does, I seem to recall, their Horus Heresy stuff, but he's one of their, mm. their submissions. Type and and we promise faithfully we will put links up to this on the social media. We, promise, we promise. But as I understand... Uh, because it's Christmas and we too get time off our proper jobs. This is true as well. Uh, we promise faithfully we'll put up a link. But yes, uh, I was, as I was saying to Laurie, um, he... Uh, he was saying they get like an awful lot of entries, mm, like an mm. awful lot of entries. So you get in there, get good. Don't rush it. Don't don't leave to the last minute. Don't just sit there going, "Oh, I'd quite like to write for Black Library. It would be nice." Oh, oh I've left it. Oh, I've been playing. I've been playing Doom all day. Oh, I'll write this thing. Oh, it'll be fine. You won't get in. Write, write, write again, rewrite, rewrite, edit, have a good think about it, then go to sleep, then delete it all, then rewrite it again. Possibly terrible writing advice, but still. Um, also, if if Warhammer is not your thing, abandon books. Abandon books! It's not abandon. Um, abandon books are, are also after writers. Um, they have, again, the similar sort of deal. Uh, the window for submissions opens January the 14th. Uh, on midnight and closes February the 15th uh, again at midnight because <laughs> as we know midnight is when these do do you think it has to be at midnight and you have to send the submission at a crossroads <laughs> yeah, that's how it's supposed to work so again um, genre publishing uh, Abaddon Books um, uh, they, they specialise in all sorts of stuff, but one of the things they're famous for is they do the Judge Dredd books, not the Judge Dredd comic books, the Judge Dredd books, the Judge Dredd Year One, the, the Strontium Dog, which we reviewed and quite liked, uh, the Strontium Dog novels, that sort of thing. That's what they produce. They also produce um, their own genre fiction, and they do this strange thing where they'll, they'll produce like a brand of genre fiction. So, for example, they've done The Afterblight Chronicles, which is post-apocalyptic, Tomes of the Dead, which is spooky, Weird Space, which is kind of Firefly sci-fi, with all sorts of monsters. We talked about Weird Space beforehand. It's the one with the slightly phallic aliens. Oh, um, lovely. And Gods and Monsters, which is... Uh, how to describe Gods and Monsters? It's God Punk. It's God Punk with a little bit more oomph to it, shall we say? Um, but yes, th- those those four that I've just read out, mm-hmm. about now after uh, specific pitches for those. They want a 150 word elevator pitch. They want um, they want a 1,000 word chapter by chapter treatment, so a breakdown of what you would produce. A 2,000 word writing sample. 
Thereafter, 30,000 word novellas. So you have to produce a... If you get this, you'll have to produce a 30,000 word novella. That's that's actually not all that much. It's not. And it's, I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's still hard going, but... But again, writing sample, 2,000 words. Now, I, mm. I, know, I know for a fact, because again, I was talking to the person involved with this, David Thomas Murray, does give good feedback. And he does, you know, he does read and go through things. Um, so I think it took them about a year last time to get the submissions bits and pieces done. So, mm. so I uh, give either of those a go if you want to be a writer. Uh, in other news, Gallybega Press will launch a short story list in 2015 to help lesser-known writers um, out there. Gallybega Press or the people who a little while ago complained that they were getting way too many submissions that had nothing to do with the stuff that they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you, you do have to pick your targets, don't you? It's it, it, uh, That's the thing. From uh, Obviously, I, I sort of do a little bit of dabbling in thick writing and things. Um, and all the advice is choose your target carefully. Don't scattergun it. Well, one of the things they, they, they did, because they have like a submissions window as well, uh, one of the things that Gallybegger do is they say, um, we, we'd love to read your work, but can you just tell us a little bit about one of our books, please, <laughs> in, a, in your opening letter? Yeah, and, they won't, and they won't consider submissions unless you do, because they want to they want proof that you've thought about yeah. who you want to be published by, rather than just having a scattergun approach. Yeah, which, um, which is never ideal, really, is it? Well, yeah, Gallybegger are great, we like them. And they're launching a short story list, so that's really. Can cool. we talk about about play submissions that are coming up? If, oh, if, yes. if you're the sort of person who is interested into writing dialogue and things, twenty four seven theatre festival, which is based in Manchester, which is where, of course, Fab Radio is based, um, have had a little bit of a funding issue. Perhaps putting it delicately, um, and so next year, rather than being a week, there'll be a weekend. They're going to be based around the uh, drama school in the University of Manchester, but. Crucially, what this means is rather than your piece has to be about an hour and sort of between 50 minutes and 60 and, and that's it. Um, it can be any length from 5 minutes to 90 minutes and uh, as they always do with these things, they say that they want you to truly think outside the box. Uh, the submissions window is not is yet actually open. Uh, it will be opening next year but if you want to have a think about that over your Christmas break, uh, if you've got something ready and you definitely want to put it on and you're also on the producing side of, of things as well as writing, uh, the Greater Manchester Fringe Theatre Festival is back next year and their submissions are currently open. Um, again, they've had a couple of little changes this year on the admin side of things and how that's done. Um, um, with, with venues um, being allocated and, and sort of applied to and things like that, um, but that's open. Then generally, I think they close. Well, they say in the end of March to get in the brochure, um, which you definitely want to do. Um, and again, advance notice doesn't open yet. Opens on the thirtieth uh, of January, uh, twenty fifteen. The Bruntwood Prize for Playwriting, which uh, will have again a massive number of people submitting to it. Um, but if you're interested, go for it on that one. Um, their window generally opens about May, but they're not actually saying when they close yet. And again, we'll put all the links up to those. What we were saying, because we go to quite a few of the, the fringe things, is that there was very little sci-fi this but this year just gone. There was. I mean, when it was Dr. Who 50th, mm, there, was there was a lot of sci-fi. sci-fi. And that was partially because there was a separate festival that was all about the Dr. Yeah. Who 50th, and it was all sci-fi. And now it's... It, there's, this year, there's this year, there was issues... Uh, yeah, it was people, pe- people, you know, going on stage and shouting about things, and some of them were brilliant. Mm. But 
again, you know, you can do genre, you can do horror, you can do fantasy, you can do sci-fi. You very rarely, outside Shakespeare, you very rarely see small plays that are fantasy. Mm. They're either comedy fantasy, mm. um, because, you know, people, it's weird, isn't it? Actors are these, <laughs> actors are these outgoing people, but you put them in a, you put them on a, on the stage and without context, if they are dressed like an orc, they just feel a bit silly. With mm. some fairness, being dressed like an orc is a bit silly, but still, um, there, there's some great ideas out there, and there's some, there's also some great works. I mean, we've seen some adaptations of classic British comic books brought to the stage yeah. on the Fringe Theatre, and yeah. it's been fantastic. I mean, you might not be lucky enough to have the rights to do the Ballad of Halo Jones, but there's stuff out there that you you know. That if you're familiar with, you might want to consider turning into a play. I'm upset that 24/7 want to think outside the box because my play is about a place that produces boxes. Medi- boxes, yeah, meditation cubes. Yeah. To be fair, I'm fairly sure that may have been the theme of one of last year's plays. Really? <laughs> really? There was that. That's one. Of, uh, I saw most of it. Well, I saw about 50% of this year's 24/7, and one of the ones I didn't see, I'm fairly sure, involved people making boxes or something. Oh, well, this is the, this is the thing. Boxes are useful. They protect against the elements. Mm. Uh, you know, why, why think outside the box? I know what they mean. It's just yeah, such a cliche. It is. It's, it's, all, it's all a bit buzzword bingo. Um, so, shall we, we move on? Shall we move on? Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fab Radio International. So, at the start of the show, I promised that I would be talking about a fantasy trilogy that, you know, you might have not occurred to you as a fantasy trilogy. Now, honestly, if you've come to a spy podcasting, you'll have realised what I'm about to talk to you about. But still, <laughs> I want to talk to you about Dungeons and Dragons. Because uh, I'm a massive geek and have been since I was 12. Um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons is a game, Ed. It's a game. It's not a book. Well, it comes in book format. And in order to play the game, you have to read three grit big wadging books. You don't have to. You can kind of make it up as you go along. But let's be honest, if you don't actually read the books, you're not really playing Dungeons & Dragons. You're essentially just playing Let's Pretend. Most people have read the books. Most most people who play the game have read the books. And recently they've re-released all three of them. It's a trilogy. The trilogy starts with the player's handbook, ends with the Dungeon Master's Guide, and has a weird second book called the Monster Manual. So, let's get into this, because, firstly, this is, uh, we're not normally on this show we review something that is genre. This is a quintessential fantasy toolkit. Okay. So, what we've got here, firstly, Bear's Handbook, 5th edition, tells you how to create characters to play a role-playing game. Shall I explain how role-playing games work? Okay. Butcher nerds, get around the table. Okay. Uh, one person is telling a story. The rest of them are characters in that story. Um, rather than rather than just saying, and then I kill all the monsters, you have to roll dice. So you have rules that govern what you can do in your game of Let's Pretend. And it's a collective game of Let's Pretend. So rather than just one person sitting there going, and then you get attacked by a dragon, and everyone goes, we kill it. That would be boring. Yes. It, instead, it's, right, and, and you see some bubbling in the swamp. Okay. Um, my, my, my thief, who's rather good at spotting things, has a look round. 
there's swamp gas. Oh, you see an eye. You see you see a tail. You see an eye. It's a dan 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 dragon. At which point the players, if they're very sensible, say things like, "We run away through the swamp. Run away! Run away!" That's how the game is played. They, it's it's sort of like a radio player with no actual rules. It's an improvised improvised interaction. The thing about these rule books is is that they are specifically designed narrative t- tools designed to express digitus, which is a very posh way of saying it's a way of allowing you to create stories yourself with your friends that can be interacted and acted upon. So unlike unlike your regular book, these are books that allow you to tell stories rather than books that just tell you a story, which is, you know, jolly interesting. So we've got the Player's Handbook. The Player's Handbook is full of how to play a role-playing game, how to play the game, what characters you can create, how to, as it says at the top, how to play. Mm. Um, all the core rules that you need are here. So if you were entirely new to this tabletop role-playing lark, would that give you everything you need? Pretty much. Mm. I mean, they, they, do t- they also do a, a set which is uh, the, beginner's, the beginner's box set. And really, you should start off with the beginner's box set because that's specifically designed to kind of baby you through the steps. What's in the beginner's box set then? Um, and a starting adventure, mm. all loads of dice, and the simplest basic description of all the rules. Okay. So the scenario is designed that you can, you know, you read it once, you open up the pages and off you go. And that's the idea. The player's handbook is all of those rules plus all the other rules you could possibly want from playing from essentially playing Aragorn when he's just decided to go out for a cup of, a cup of tea <laughs> and maybe maybe have to fight an orc because the orc's got the sugar <sighs> all the way all the way to his trip to Mordor right so you know it covers it covers the, the, the full length of an adventurer's life that's the player's handbook I'll ignore the monster manual for a moment because it's a difficult second book oh. and get straight into the dungeon master's guide Dungeon master, a dungeon master is the person who sits at the head of the table and tells the story. So that person is essentially spending two or three hours of their evening doing a kind of improv storytelling thing. And there's different approaches to running these games. So some people, some people will sit there with a scenario, and they'll be very mechanical about it because these have rules and they run off smooth mechanical lines. You can just say roll for damage. Oh, you. you <laughs> You, 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 you turn left, you go down a corridor, you, are fa- you encounter an orc, roll for damage, the orc hits you for six, blah, blah, blah. You can do that if that's what you are. If, you know, if your limit and of your creative expression is down to simple linear facts and numbers, that's fine. A wonderful magic happens, though. The 12-year-old boy or girl who does this, who starts off being very basic suddenly finds it more interesting to express themselves. And the next thing you know, by the time they're 18, they're writing fantasy novels. It's shocking. It's a gateway drug. It's a gateway drug. Caution, writing. Caution, writing. We've interviewed, what, 50 authors this year? Probably, not far, yeah. Um, About 20 of those are fantasy gamers of some description. Mm. Um, I suppose because it stretches the imagination, doesn't it? And if, therefore, if... I mean, my impression is because I don't do this tabletop thing, but my impression is that you get together, you know, once a week or more, depending on on your um, schedule, 
and you sit around and you do this. And that's got to stretch your imaginative muscles, hasn't it? And if you're stretching them routinely once a week, it's not a great leap, is it, to sit in a room on yourself one evening a week and write it all down. And the thing with the Dungeon Master's Guide is Dungeon Master's Guide is essentially a collection of messes. It's split into three thirds. So three thirds? Three thirds. As opposed to four thirds or two thirds. So so third one, but the, the first section is all about world building and it describes to you um, how to build a world, how to think about a world, which is, you know, writing 101. What are you writing about? This is world building. And because, obviously, if you don't buy a scenario, if you don't go off and buy a scenario, and they do sell put scenarios that you can just run because, you know, you've got four children and you've got a job and you don't really have time, but you do have time to read a book and play a game with your mates, so you just buy the scenario. But you're kind of encouraged to write your own. Mm. And even with the scenarios they do sell you, they kind of encourage you to, to modify them to your players. Most scenarios are written from the point of view that it's, you know, you're going to have a wizard, a warrior, a thief... Maybe a noble paladin, maybe someone who's a half orc. You know, you kind of your standard kind of fantasy movie set. Maybe a hobbit, a hobbit, Sean Bean. You know, the the, the normal. The don't normal, be Sean Bean. Don't be Sean Bean. Don't be Sean Bean. The, the normal normal set of heroes. And yet, I don't think I've ever really encountered the part party that's exactly like that. I once played a party where we were all half orcs. And we all spoke in grunts to each other. That was great fun. Unfortunately, the guy had bought a scenario that was all about politics, so he had to completely rewrite it. It was great. Anyway, part one of the Dungeon Master's Guide is a world of your own, how to build a universe, how to build a multiverse. Part two is actually how to, the call to adventure, how to write an adventure, how to create the hero's journey, how to describe a world. Part three is running the game and rules. Lots of rules and and. Well, this is one of the things, and I'll get to this in the Monster Manual as well, is if you flip to the, the third third of the book, so the, the final section, you'll get lots and lots of illustrations of magic items, and you sit there and you go, well, yeah, it's a, it's a role-playing game. I've, I've played video role-playing games. You pick up loads of magic swords. You change all sorts of magic bits and pieces. Yeah, but no, really, think about it. Each one of these items, so Talisman of the Sphere, the Talisman of Ultimate Evil, I'm obviously in the Talisman section, <laughs> Universal Trident of Fish Command, excellent, because you need to command fish, the Wand of Wonders, the Weapon of Warning, any of these magical items could be a story in and of itself. Okay. Because, think think about it, the, 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 most, the most famous fantasy trilogy is all about a magic ring, one magic ring, a magical ring of invisibility. One ring to bind them all and one, yeah, exactly. You in can, the darkest garden. If from a writer's perspective and from a, a, a creative perspective, you could run. You could write a story based on almost any of the the gubbins that is in the back of this book. So that's the Dungeon Master's Guide, fifth edition. Okay. That's that's very very useful. When we say fifth edition, is, can we come in straight on fifth edition? Do you need to know anything about what about the, the previous four? Uh, no, you don't. This okay. Is, this is the most recent edition. I'll 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 get to that in oh, a moment. Oh, sorry. Because um, you've reminded me, I should really explain the different editions. But we'll get to that in a moment. I'm going to go to the monster manual. The monster oh, manual. difficult second book. The difficult second book. Now, unlike the player's handbook, which tells you how to play and um, tells you how to emote and create character and get into improv, essentially, and the gateway drug to acting, or the dungeon master's guide, which is the the gateway drug to, to writing the monster manual is not a gateway drug 
it's a gateway drug to fun, perhaps, is a big book of monsters, and it's full of ideas. Uh, each page has a beautiful illustration of a monster, and then starts for that monster, but then it has a page full of things that you can do with that monster that isn't just hitting it. So the, I've just opened this at random, random, and there's a section on fungi, as in, you know, as in mushrooms. mushrooms. As in mushrooms. Evil mushrooms. Um, th- th- there's there's one here that shrieks when you go near it. So it shrieks, and then mm. obviously other monsters come running. Um, okay, so it's a guard, a, a, there's a security one. guard mushroom? It's a security guard mushroom. <laughs> there's, 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 another, there's another one here that um, essentially fills you full of, list, uh, of, of horrible poisons. Um, there's a gas ball one that tries to destroy you. And then that's right next to a thing. <laughs> there's next to a thing called a flame skull, which is a flying, burning skull monster. There's dragons, obviously. There's loads of dragons. There's loads of descriptions of dragons. The game is called Dungeons and Dragons. I suppose Dungeon Master's Master Guide has has the dungeon bit in. This is the book with the dragons in it. Difficult setting book is also just a mine of information, inspiration, and ideas. Again, from a fantasy fan's point of view, it's just full of wonderful ideas and wonderful ways of taking a traditional monster and changing it slightly so you can tell a story about it. So, three storytelling tools that you can use to play a game if you're so inclined. You asked me about the, the various editions. Yes. So, what happened was, um, way, 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 way back in the 70s, um, they, they just kind of they produced Dungeons and Dragons. They didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't really think about what they were doing. They were trying to create a war game with a kind of a narrative structure wrapped around it because they liked telling stories about the war games they were playing. Um, that became absurdly popular. So popular that they didn't really know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of got the strange split because Dungeons and Dragons split into two. Yeah, Dungeons and Dragons set in edition, which is a big box full of stuff. And you also had Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Ooh. which was it, there was wasn't anything advanced about <laughs> uh, Dungeons and Dragons. It was a legal thing. Someone had a claim to the name Dungeons. Is this and Dragons. the People's Front of Judea? Yeah, it was a legal. Thing. We're not the People's Front of Judea. We're the Judean People's Front. We, we we don't want to give you basically. We don't want to pay you X amount of whatever for a license. Is. Yeah. So so we'll call it Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Terrible business move, really confused people. Still confuses people to this day. I was I was asked a little while ago, I was like, Ed, you're a, you're a journalist who knows about these things. Oh, what's the difference between AD and D and D? Nothing. There is no difference. They're, they're essentially the same game, just slightly different rules. So, all of that sorted itself out when the people who were producing these games essentially went a bit bust, got bought by. <laughs> a bit Wiz- bust. bit bust, got bought by Wizards of the Coast. Ah. Essentially, they were failings. They got bought by Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast turned around and went, right, so we've got Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which is in its second edition. We've got Dungeons & Dragons, which is also in its second edition. We'll do a third edition, and we'll just call it Dungeons & Dragons. Okay, I can see what they've done there. But we'll present it in the format that the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons game was presented in, which is with the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide to Monster Manual. So going forward, that's how they presented it. Third edition was weird. Because the rules at the back were open source, right? So the core mechanics behind the rules, not a lot, lot not a lot of the fluffy stuff, mm. but the core mechanics were essentially your core mechanics were, were were open source. You could produce as many games, and people did. 
because before then you had to get a license from from the producers. Now you didn't. It was open source. So thousands of books or, or D20, thousands of books were <laughs> produced and people used these fantasy tabletop role-playing rules to create superhero games, to create all sorts of stuff, spy games. There's there's even some smutty books based on D&D. <laughs> yeah. Um, is, is, what's that, Rule 34? Rule 34. Uh, it's called The Book of Erotic Fantasy. And oh, saying God! Oh, no! Don't. But it exists. And it, if you're watching us on the webcam, if the webcam's on, you'll see me wigging out right now. But such was the craze that every single possible genre that could have been done for 3rd edition was done for 3rd edition. So by the time we got to 4th edition, um, Wizards, of course, had been bought by Hasbro. And Hasbro were like, none of this nonsense. Stop, <laughs> stop this nonsense. Um, and they produced 4th edition. The problem with 4th edition is a fantastic game. The problem is it was nothing like the previous three. At all. Oh. It was it was a different style of play. It was more board gamey, shall we say. Okay. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that style of play. And it actually can... Uh, it's a really good tool for creative expression. Unfortunately... You were introducing this concept to a bunch of people who were quite conservative because it's D and D is the core game, so this is like too radical an idea for them. So people didn't like it. So it didn't really get a fair crack of the rip. People didn't. Pe- people put as many objections as they could because it was way too different from the previous three. Yeah. By the time we get to fifth, fifth has taken all the really good ideas from fourth. And all the really good ideas from third, and all the really good ideas from second, and all the really good ideas from first, and distilled it down into a very simple, straightforward, just roll your dice, have fun and smile mechanics. The level of complexity that people who who still go on about second edition want are in there is in there. It's all all built into the game, but the core simplicity is also there as well. It has its cake, and then it magically produces another cake. It's eating its cake whilst magically producing another cake for it to look at. So I can't, you know, it does prove you can have it. You have your your literary cake and eat it mm. at the same time. We should move on. We should definitely move on. So that's D and D, and I've been threatening to do this as a review for absolutely ages. So the um, those books that you've been talking about today are they out now? They are out now. Ooh. The DMG came out um, just this month. Um, this this is that would be the, the Dungeon Master's Guide for those of us who aren't down with this stuff. Um, it's the it's the new edition. Uh, if you've ever wondered about getting back into D and D, now is the time to do so. We'll start the player set if you're not entirely familiar with it. Um, but no, these are, this is a cracking set of books, and I predict for those who who know what I'm about to talk about, I predict it will defeat Pathfinder. Pathfinder is a, is the is the evil evil son or, or, or renegade child of third edition. But that's a different story for a different time. Across the world, 24 hours a day, this is Fatboyian International. So I got to talk with Altered Corbin creator Richard Morgan. He was lovely. This interview coming up next. Embrace the alternative. This 
is Fab Radio International. Richard Morgan, welcome to the Bookworm. Uh, thank you very much, Lloyd. Thanks for having me. And tell us all about your new book. It's the wrap for a trilogy that I've been working on for what seems like forever, uh, to be honest. Um, it's taken about six years from publication of the first to publication of this. Um, that's partly due to um, a few things like having a child along the way and uh, doing quite a lot of moonlighting in the games industry. So those things kind of uh, took away from my time. Uh, but also just that I think... I'd always wanted, I had this hankering to write uh, some, some sword and sorcery, and I, a lot of this was me sort of feeling my way around that, not least because f- that initial ambition was, was, you know, a good 20 years or more old, and I needed to find out what had happened to me in the space between those two points. Uh, so that the books I ended up writing were not perhaps quite the, the fantasy trilogy that I would have envisaged uh, as a, a 20-something aspiring writer. Is it any different writing fantasy from writing science fiction? Well, that's an interesting point because a lot of people, you know, seem to think that it's radically different in the sense that, you know, I lost some readers from the science fiction camp uh, along the way. But to me, there doesn't. I'd say certainly stylistically, I wouldn't. I'd say there's not a real difference. I, I, I imported pretty much all of my style and sensibility from the Kovacs books directly into this media. Uh, so I, you know, I'd say to someone who's read the Kovacs books, this, this, this is not significantly different in style, in assumption, in thematic concerns. Obviously, it's different in the sense that it's set in the fantasy universe rather than uh, a science fictional universe. But even that's up for debate. And to be honest, I, you know, I'm a little bit perplexed by the idea that someone would, as soon as they see that it's set in a world of, of swords and sorcery, quite literally, would suddenly go, no, no, I'm not reading that. You know given that they're quite prepared to read something that's set, for example, in the space opera setting. seems a very strange uh, demarcation. But it, it definitely exists. I mean, I ran up against that very clearly. It, it's definitely there. Any chance you'll return to the Kovacs novels? Well, you never say never, because, uh, <laughs> first of all, because you can end up looking stupid. Uh, but also just because it really is, you know... It's not a case of saying, right, that's it, I'm done with that, and there's no way you're going to you know, drag me back to that. It's just a case of there comes a point when you've kind of written out the, the, you know, whatever the, the, the germ was, that the, the thing that gave it mileage in the first place. With the Kovacs novels, I really felt that uh, by the time I got to the third book, I pretty much explored the themes of who this guy was, the, the uni- what the universe that he operated in looked like and, and what its you know, potential human implications were. And, and a, lot, I mean, there, a lot of fans have said to me, oh, we, you know, you could write a story about this, you could write a story about him before, you could do prequels, you could do sidequels, you could... And yes, that's true, you could, I suppose. But the question is, you know, A, would I enjoy doing it? Because that's a big thing for me. I mean, I, this, I'm very lucky to have a dream job in the sense that I write what I want. Uh, so I've, I've got to consider, you know, would it be fun to write? And ultimately that comes through, I think, in the writing. And so also there's the, the concern, the sort of critical and commercial concern, would it be fun to write? Because if it wouldn't be fun to write, then there's a good chance it wouldn't be very fun to read either. Uh, so there's that. Um, that's the other thing. And also just I feel that you can, you know, you can really milk something dry. Uh, I, every series character I ever read ended up feeling like a, a caricature of its former self, because the books started to feel repetitive, the, 
the, the gestures and the demeanor and the you know whatever the, the ticks of the of the uh, particular series were started to get tiresome and eventually it wears thin and it's it's like anything else you take the bucket to the to the well too many times and and it, it breaks so with me it's always been a case of get out ahead of time while it's still fresh while while it still feels good and that was certainly the case with the Kovacs books. Uh, and with with the fantasy trilogy, even more so, I think, because there's an element, you know, very deliberately so, there's an element of kind of doom and destiny about those about the, the fantasy trilogy, and so there is an arc that ends at the third book. And I, it's quite interesting. A lot of people were saying, "Oh, well, you know, uh, wonder, you know, will there be another book?" And I, that's strange because to me, reading what I wrote in the last sort of twenty or thirty pages of the book, it seems impossible that there'd be another book because. You know what needs to be said has been said. So what's next? Right. Well, I'm going back to fan, uh, sorry to science fiction for a while. I've got a, a series of um, ideas for novels set in roughly in the context of the Black Man novel, the Black Man universe. It, it's not quite the same. I mean, we're moving forward in time, and I'm placing it elsewhere. Uh, it's not not on Earth anymore. But fundamentally, the assumptions that came with with Black Man um, are being put to work again. Uh, in, in a similar context, and that's what I'm working on at the moment. Uh, we'll, and we'll see how that goes. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, um, that book is underway. If, if it feels like it's got legs, then I may t- try and do two or three books with the same the same scenarios and characters. If not, then obviously it can be a standalone. I can look at something else. But again, it all hinges on what mileage you think you can get out of it. And, and I, you know, I, I would like to think I'm not unusual in. Or in being an author who doesn't think in terms of what mileage can I get out of this, how how much of it can I sell, but rather what mileage can I get out of this, you know, how how much good writing can I produce, how how much how many good books could can I produce from this, uh, and there's always a limit on that. Uh, it, it's always you'd say it's always wise to to pull the plug before you have to. Is science fiction and our attitude towards science fiction evolving? I think, yes. I mean, I think, to be honest with you, I, I remember uh, trying to think where I read it, but I read an article by Thomas Pynchon. I think it might have been in his in the preface to his collection of short stories, Slow Learner, and in which he was talking, I think he was talking about, uh, actually, it was oddly enough, talking about science fiction. One of the things he said was he felt that it was, it, it, it didn't address the issue of death, and all mature adult literature needs to address the issue of death. Uh, I, I don't quote me on that exactly because I say I honestly, it's a while since I read that collection and I honestly don't recall. But certainly what he was saying was that any any you know adult literature, as it were, must approach and deal with the the, the, the theme of death because it is such a, a massive part of, of human existence. And um, I think so to that extent, I think you know everything I've written certainly takes that on board. And I find it hard to imagine writing something that wouldn't actually. I mean, Kovach books are a case in point. They are, in theory, about uh, about a, a universe in which you never have to die. Um, but obviously, death looms large in the in the context and the themes of all three of those books. Back when you wrote Black Widow for Marvel Comics, she wasn't as famous as she is now. Would you go back to writing Black Widow? I I would love to go back to Black Widow. To be honest with you, I mean, I. I you know the the truth of that. No one ever hid this. I mean, it wasn't you know a big dirty secret or anything. But the truth of the of my run on Black Widow was that Marvel pulled the plug because basically they just weren't getting the numbers. Um, it, you know, it was getting good critical reviews and people said a lot of nice things about it. But fundamentally, we just weren't pulling the numbers that made made sense because Marvel were paying me quite well for that run. 
you know, they were treating me nicely, uh, and uh, and they they just made a, a very clear-headed business decision that, that, you know, this is not worth doing anymore because they weren't selling it. So, you know, there always, always was going to be a third volume. Uh, there was an, It was intended. The, uh, I think anyone who read the second uh, collection, the things they say about it, could see that there, it was reaching up, you know, a, a cliff-hanging point and that there was narrative to come. But it just got, you know, it just got canned um, for very obvious commercial reasons. So I would have been very happy to go on writing, you know, to certainly to produce a third, a third you know, another, another six episodes, say, or, you know, indeed to go on writing the character as, as an ongoing because I found, I thought she was fascinating. Um, sad to say, it seems that what most people wanted wanted out of Black Widow, and I suspect probably still do, is tits and ass, you know. Uh, and I just think that's such a waste of, of an enormous well of, of potential material, uh, which is something which I tried to address when I was writing it. I tried to sort of, you know, home in on this this issue of the fact that the, the, the comic book readership has got this slightly uncomfortable relationship with female protagonists. And the honest assessment that will, as men, you know, as heterosexual men, we're all pretty much drawn to pictures of the of the naked or semi-naked female form, and you know, try and do something with that. Try and approach that in a in a meta a meta narrative fashion as well as a narrative fashion. So, in in the in the run, Black Widow is dealing with the realities of being an attractive woman in a in a man's world, and also you, as the reader, are dealing with the 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 meta truths of reading a comic book about an attractive woman. Uh, so, you know. In, in a, a genre which is, you know, that section of the genre, sorry, that section of the medium is, you know, dedicated almost exclusively to, um, to, to male readers. Uh, so, you know, that was, for me, that was very fertile ground, very interesting ground. But actually, there was a lot of backlash against it. People didn't like the fact that the widow was assertively feminist. Uh, they didn't like the fact that I was playing meta tricks with, with, uh, with the narrative and with the images. And, yeah, you know, it flew like a brick. <laughs> so would I go back? Absolutely I'd go back. But is there any chance of me going back? I, I really do not see it happening because, you know, why, why would Marvel invite me back as, as someone who, you know, didn't sell very many copies? If, if they go forward with the Black Widow as a character, either in movies or in, uh, in comic books, they're, they're going to be looking at something that has broad appeal, something that will shift, you know, 100,000 copies a month. And that, you know, I, it's the likelihood that I would write that is, is pretty minimal because the, my concerns are not the concerns of that broad readership. Your run on Black Widow at the time was praised for its uh, feminist stance. Um, do you think the time is right for that sort of work now? Well, I would love that to be the case. I really would. And, I mean, I know there have been some, some sort of explosions uh, in the comic book world about about as was what's perceived as a, a rising misogyny in certain areas of it um i honestly don't i think that the problem i think the problem is that the source material i'm not talking about black widow here i'm talking about mainstream comic books dc and, and marvel the source material is problematic because it emanates from a time and place that is so unreconstructed compared to you know, the way things are now, the way things were when I was writing Black Widow 10 years ago, and even the way things were, you know, 20 years ago, I'd say. It, you know, these, these comics book, comic books come from a time where, you know, before the civil rights movement, before second wave feminism gets a proper leg up, um, you know, before there was this re-evaluation um, that came with the 60s and 70s of, of what society looked should look like, what was good, what was bad. And I think... 
to be honest, I, I still think that the mainstream superhero comics have, haven't moved on from that. Uh, they, they really haven't. And possibly they can't move on from it. I mean, because I think the whole concept of superheroes and supervillains is probably up way past its adult bedtime. Uh, sorry, that's a very confused sentence, isn't it? It's way, up way past its bedtime in the sense that it's not in any way an adult conceit, and I don't, I don't really see how it can become an adult conceit. I think people who go to see the superhero movies, you know, the adults though they may be, are not going for an adult experience. They're going to revisit a, a portion of their youth, their childhood, uh, and to enjoy, uh, you know, a childlike ex uh, movie experience. And I don't, you know, you can, you can, you can dump some postmodern witticisms into that. You can, you can provide some sort of edgy little, edgy bits of window dressing. But I don't really think that you ever um, are, are going to approach the, the the necessary amount of, you know, tree felling that's got to go on. Uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you know that with the Chris Nolan um, Batman movies, uh, again, very well made movies, and I think Nolan's a fantastic cinematographer. Um, but again, there was this this sort of uh, each time I went to see one of those, I kind of I was expecting to, to be led into you know Frank Miller's Dark Knight territory, and we never really go there, you know, because what we we never get the old man disillusioned, the fact that what's broken is society rather than uh, you know certain evil people within it and so forth. So these sort of what have become, I think, fairly generally accepted truths about the human condition and human society. Those things, even those movies, which are certainly the sort of the, you know, the, the furthest we've come, if you like, even those shied away from the really interesting work. Um, and of course, you know, meantime, Miller's work has just become less and less interesting, less and less um, inflected or textured. Uh, and yes, I, I, you know, to me, it almost feels as if that superhero element is, is in full retreat from contemporary reality rather than attempting to really address it. If you were trapped on a desert island with only one book for company, what would it be? Oh, that's tricky, but I'm guessing probably something by Pynchon. Uh, Mason and Dixon, maybe. Uh, that's one of my favourites, and it's a great big book. Against the Day, maybe, because that's, that's his biggest book, but I, I, I don't think it's as good as Mason and Dixon. I'd say Vineland is probably my favourite of his, uh, but it's a bit short. Uh, that's that's only three hundred and something pages long. And you you could you know, eventually you'd have read it too many times. Mason and Dixon is a massive novel and and so full of stuff that I think it would take you a very long time to get bored with it. So probably that one. Simpsons or Futurama? Oh, Futurama, definitely, definitely. I I a um. I remember my editor saying to me once that he felt that while Futurama was very good, it wasn't important in the same way that The Simpsons are. You know, he's probably right, but I just, I laugh far more with Futurama. I, I, I just think Futurama is, is right up my street, rather, whereas The Simpsons, while I can see it's very good, and, and yet it is, it is very often very funny, it, it doesn't hit me the same way Futurama does. Steampunk or cyberpunk? Oh, cyberpunk, definitely. I, 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 I'm a little impatient with the steampunk side of things, um, mainly because it feels... I think, I think it has something to do with the fact that there's this slightly um, nostalgic sense of, you know, we're sort of going back and... It's, it's the old thing. This, this comes up quite a lot also in the way that we're, you know, in, in contemporary... The, the amount of, of fiction we're seeing on our screens, how much of it harks back to bygone eras like Downton Abbey or, or you know, the stuff that the, the sort of never-ending supply of Victoriana and so forth. And the sense in which there's a slightly sort of romanticised 
vision going with that uh, very often that you, we're kind of looking and you know the, the, the sort of the whole Jane Austen phenomenon the idea that we're this sort of longing looking back to the the romanticism of of, of Jane Austen and, and as I think a columnist wrote some time ago said you know what is it we're really looking back to we're looking back to a time when when women had so few options in life it was to basically hope someone rich died and left them some money or make the best of a bad lot and marry some guy who might not treat them too shabbily and um yeah, similarly, I feel with steampunk, it, it often comes with trappings of nostalgia for this sort of uh, former time with lots of petticoats and, uh, you know, uh, uh, tinted eyeglasses and, and all things Victorian. That said, I'm not a huge expert on the former, so I wouldn't want to, I, I wouldn't want to pass judgment on it. But definitely cyberpunk, to me, is, it's the future. It's, it's, it's what's happening. I'd say that the people that are really interesting working in science fiction now, guys like, say, Peter Watts, they are the heirs to the cyberpunk thing in the sense that you're looking at cutting, you know, bleeding edge science at the way it interacts with society and stuff. And I just find that more interesting than the steampunk thing. Truth or beauty? Oh, truth, always. You know, <laughs> beauty fades. <laughs> Richard Morgan, thank you very much for your time. Uh, my pleasure. Nice to be talking to you. So this has been quite an odd show. I've rambled on about uh, role-playing games and I've talked to Richard K. Morgan. We've talked about comic books, we've talked about all sorts of fantastic things. Uh, very odd show, but uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you like us, and you should, because we're lovely, you should uh, check us out Radio Bookworm on Twitter, Radio Bookworm on Tumblr, Radio Bookworm on Facebook. Yeah, you go basically go Facebook slash Radio Bookworm, and we're there. You can also find us on iTunes. You can also find us on Mixcloud. You can also find us on FabRadioInternational.com. And it's goodbye for me. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst Magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune, produced by A.L. Johnson. Wishing a very Merry Christmas to all our listeners. <laughs>